maximize every opportunity so that you can become you legendary. Become legendary. What adjustments can you make right now to make yourself one percent better? Your only goal is to be the best version of you. Welcome to Becoming Legendary. Um, it's Patrick this week. I'm doing a solo cast. And I am doing a solo cast because I want the freedom to talk about some things that I find incredibly important. And I don't want to uh, have any convolution of ideas and I want to be able to speak freely. So um, no, no co-host this week. We'll be back to regularly scheduled program on the 10th, the 20th and the 1st. But for this first, we are going to do a one-on-one -on -one cast. And I'm going to talk about some things that I think are incredibly important and that are incredibly pertinent. Uh, challenges facing our society, our planet, our global community, and, and the likes. Now, I, I want to start by saying, you know, neither of my co-hosts were made aware that I was going to put out this podcast. And I'll apologize to them for that. Um, and, and everything that I say in this podcast will be 100% exclusively my own opinion. Um, so this week, I'm going to talk about, again, things that I think are really important. The loss of intellectual honesty, the loss of shared reality, um, as well as this really pressing idea of how we communicate over an ever-expanding divide and how we start to bridge um, these, two, these two realities or multiple realities that are being built out away from the shared reality that uh, does exist. But before I get into those subjects, I wanna offer um, a little bit of information about myself and why I may have uh, an opportunity to view the things that are going on and many things that go on in a little bit of a different perspective than, than you. And I've talked um, pretty extensively on the podcast about how my brain operates just a little bit differently than um, normal brains. Um, and in many circumstances, I think that can be disadvantaged or disadvantageous for me. Um, and in many circumstances, I think it can be advantageous. So, I don't think that it's better or worse. Maybe, maybe if I had to, if I had to like pick one, I, I think I would probably likely say that it's a little bit worse. Um, but I'm certainly not saying my brain operates better than yours. I'm just saying it, it likely operates different. And um, to kind of explain what, what, how that, how that really happens, or why my brain might operate a little bit differently, I, I'm going to take it back to a conversation I had this week with um, a really, really important friend in my life. Um, guy that I grew up with, who literally from like age seven, uh, I was connected with. And we were kind of talking about the founding principles that the conversation we were having just led to this idea of the founding principles that made us who we are. And the thing that he really identified in me from, from seven years old made me who I am is that I never, never really cared about what other people thought of me. And that, you know, I've known, I've known that pretty intently and pretty internally um, for the majority of my life. I'm, I'm not 
influenced by the opinions of others. Um, and I'm not shifted or swayed by that standardized peer pressure. Um, and why that is, I don't exactly know. And in saying that, it's also that, you know, it's not that I don't care what people think about me, right? I mean, my preference is that everyone thinks that I am kind and do the right thing and try really hard to be a good human because I do do those things. But if, if somebody doesn't think that I do that, it, that's also not going to crush or impact the opinion that I have of myself. And I think it's easy to kind of uh, say that, you, that your brain operates that way. But I think my brain really does operate that way in that I just, um, I make decisions that I am accountable for. And um, when I make those decisions or when I make an interaction happen, uh, I, I will represent myself in the best way I possibly can. And when I leave that interaction, I, I will know that I showed up in the best way that I possibly could. Sometimes that's not great. Sometimes it's, it's mostly not perfect, but uh, it is me. And I won't think about, you know, oh, this person, this person probably didn't like that. I, I may think, you know, I, I could have done a better job uh, representing myself. I, I could have been more impactful. Uh, I could have been more calm. I could have been more active. I could have been more energized, but uh, I could have been more social. But I will know that I showed up uh, in the best way that I possibly could in that moment. And um, to kind of demonstrate a little bit of the rarity of this, there's this, I think it's a 1951 study. It was done um, by a guy named Solomon Ash, and it was a conformity study. He, he took subjects and he put them in a classroom full of people. Everyone in the classroom or room uh, was in on the study except one participant. And the group was basically asked a series of things where they were provided with information that was obviously wrong. The participant, the one participant, um, was the only one who should have had, really had the option of answering either way. All of the other members of the room had to agree with the fact that the statement that was made that was obviously wrong. And that was part of the study to see how people would conform if they were in a room full of people that all said something that was clearly wrong was right. Well, 75% of the participants at one point during the study agreed that a statement that was obviously wrong was right because the rest of the people in the room said that a statement that was obviously wrong was right. Now in, um, in the control group, 1%, 1%. So 75% to 1%. So there's a pretty significant impact in, in how most people are influenced by, by the people around them, by the peers around them. And again, the fact that I'm not influenced by the peers around me is not necessarily an, uh, an advantageous thing, right? Um, being the only one to do something, it much more often than not ostracizes you. Um, so there, there is definitely, there's definitely some negativity to having a brain that operates the way my brain operates. But uh, my friend kind of reminding me of this thing being a part of me when I was seven, 
really like sets in that this isn't something that's new. This isn't something that really I created. This is just something that arose in me and who has kind of made me the person I am. So why am I talking about this? Like, why does it matter that I, I have a brain that isn't, isn't likely influenced by peer pressure? And I will say, I will say this, you know, uh, it's important. It's, it's a part of the defining characteristics in me because I do have this really spooky ability to predict things in the future. And it's not a supernatural skill. There is nothing supernatural about it. What it is, is the clarity that I have around things is not clouded by the opinions of others. So when I see something, I see a thing for what it is. And the, the voices speaking on the outside of what it actually is are not impacting me. And as an example of this, you know, I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast or not, but I've talked about this a lot. Uh, I started telling people that there was a global pandemic coming four months before anyone knew what COVID was. And I didn't, there was like people always ask me, like, what was your source of that? And my source of that was I got in I-10 traffic one day and I got on the highway and I didn't, I, my life in Phoenix did not involve driving in rush hour traffic. But for this occasion, I was meeting somebody in Tempe. I had to get from Chandler to Tempe. Maybe it wasn't I-10, maybe it was the 101 or 202. I think it was the 101. Whatever it was, it was uh, a highway in Phoenix somewhere between Tempe and Chandler. And I got on and I only had to go like two or three exits. But in that two or three exits, I looked around and I saw people in their cars who were sicker than I'd ever seen people. And I saw people, I saw people, I could see through the windows of these cars, people experiencing stomach discomfort. I could see through the windows of these cars, people coughing and sneezing and looking like they wanted to die. And I didn't see one, I didn't see two, I didn't see three. I saw, I saw five to 10 of these people in a three exit span. And I went home that night and I said, there's a global pandemic coming. And that was when COVID's here. So no one, no one has like, they haven't got there yet. First it was, it wasn't here before March. Then it wasn't here before February. Then it wasn't here before January. Then it wasn't here before December. I'm telling you, it was here, it was happening. It was in Phoenix in November of 2020, which is when I identified it. And when I said, hey, when I went home and said, hey, this is coming. And then by the time COVID got here, I had already, I had already said in my mind, this is a thing that's going to happen. I'm four months ahead of what everybody else is experiencing. And, and you know, the news in March is like, oh, you know, all these horrible things are happening but I'd already had four months of thinking about what those things were gonna be like. So when, when, the, when somebody came in and they were really scared, I had already gone through the process of identifying uh, what that experience was like and what it was going to be. And these are not the, like, again, people, when, they, when I have this conversation with them, they always ask, you know, what outside sources did you have? And there are none. I only observed what I observed and I use the data of what I observed to make a prediction about the future. And that prediction is, is, that is all it is. It is just a prediction. It is not a certainty. There is no clairvoyance in this. There is just clarity of fact and how those facts will play out in the future. 
So that is just a, it's a very small kind of example of, of, of things I can see. Now, I will tell you right now, there's another thing that's going to happen. You know, there was this condo that just caved in upon itself in uh, Miami. And the initial report came out and it was like, oh, you know, the engineers of this condo, they did a terrible job. Maybe they did. I don't know. I do know that I have never in 40 years heard about a high-rise condominium caving in upon itself. Now, I am not about to tell you about some 9-11 conspiracy theory. I am going to tell you what is going to happen with condos along beach shore property. They are going to start caving in on themselves over the next 10 years. It's not because of any conspiracy. It is because global warming is raising the ocean levels. And as the ocean levels rise, moisture that was never expected, never planned for, is going to seep into soil structure. And it's not going to matter whether you have rooted the base foundation of your high-rise condominium into the bedrock. Because one, we don't know how the bedrock is going to shift as sea levels rise. But also what we're going to find out is that moisture interacts with the iron construction of buildings that we've had. And as that moisture continues to increase, the structures of our building degrade, our buildings degrade. And this is going to be a thing that we are going to deal with. And I don't know how many high-rise condominiums are going to have to collapse in on each other before th there is a conversation around, oh, maybe this does have to do with the fact that our climate is changing. But I will, I will make this prediction that we will in the next five, 10, 15 years, start to experience this in a way where we can't just write it off as, oh, there was one bad construction group that happened to come over from Cuba and they're a very easy scapegoat to blame for this thing that has never happened before. So I want, I've, I've wanted to say this, this on the podcast for a while. I've never really had that opportunity, but I will tell you, we're going to experience more of this. And like, I, I want to say these things because I think that they do offer credibility. I've never heard anyone ever say anything about that, but it's what happened and it's going to continue to happen. And as the facts start to come out more and more and more, they'll continue to align with these things. And, and as more and more of these catastrophes happen, we're going to have to reframe the way we think about building things next to an ocean that is expanding to consume the land that we have decided is ours. So I just checked and there have been four building collapses in seaside communities worldwide already in 2021. Uh, I get it. You're thinking, okay, great, Patrick, why are you talking about any of this? Why should I care about you talking about yourself? And the reality is you don't need to care about me talking about myself. I'm only saying these things because um, I want to lay some groundwork for the important things that we're going to talk about. So let's just jump right into intellectual honesty. And I'm going to read a definition off of Wikipedia for intellectual honesty. That is intellectual honesty is an applied method of problem solving characterized by unbiased honest, uh, by an unbiased honest attitude, which can be demonstrated in a number of different ways. One's personal beliefs or 
politics do not interfere with the pursuit of the truth. Relevant facts and information are not purposely omitted, even when such things may contradict one's hypothesis. Facts are presented in an unbiased manner and not twisted to give misleading impressions or to support one view over another. References or early work are acknowledged where possible and plagiarism is avoided. Okay, so um, why do I say there's a lack of intellectual honesty? <sighs> so I think I'm gonna start here with kind of a common, a common thing that we're all growing more and more accustomed to when we are engaging in a, in a disagreement with someone and that is goalpost moving. So I, I just a real quick framework, it's like goalpost moving. Um, I say to you, hey, listener, I just want you to know that um, your bones are made of rocks or your bones are rocks. And you kind of retort back, you know, Patrick, I, I, I think you may have kind of misunderstood what bones are. In many ways, they're similar to rocks, right? They're made of minerals, um, they're hard, they're, they're like, kind of prevalent in our world, although less prevalent than rocks, certainly. But really, they're a completely different structure that is completely differently categorized. And although they have some similar, they may have some similar mineral, mineral interaction, uh, they're two different things. We, we define them completely differently. Um, and then uh, instead of uh, continuing that or acknowledging that I, I switch this, I switch the conversation and I'm like, well, you know, bones are, bones are really important to the body. Right. And, and you were kind of left baffled because I had come to you with this idea that bones are rocks and you told me I was wrong. And instead of like even acknowledging, engaging in the fact that uh, I may have offered you some misguided information. I just switched to a completely So let me topic. give you kind of a more real life relevant example of the goalposts being moved. Um, so before the 2020 election or, or shortly after the election was uh, certified, there were a bunch of people running around saying that COVID was a hoax and that as soon as the new president was sworn in um, and, and specifically that COVID was a hoax in order to ensure that Donald Trump wasn't reelected as president. And then as soon as a new president was sworn in, um, COVID was going to miraculously disappear and everything was just going to be like, we, like we just imagined the whole thing and, and everything would reopen and no one would ever mention the word COVID again. And there were lots of people running around saying that. Well, now those same people are running around and they're saying, you know, COVID is the thing that's propping up the current administration, that, that this thing that was so detrimental to the previous administration's efforts is now the thing that is ensuring this current president has control over things. There's no logical path to ensure that the exact same public health crisis was detrimental to one presidency inherently, not because of policy decisions, but because inherently it was a thing. And then that there was going to be this miraculous erasing of this public health crisis when a new president was elected. And then when that doesn't happen, you move the thing and say, well, now this is a benefit for the new president. That is a real life example of goalpost moving. 
Uh, I have never heard anyone who was running around saying that this was going to disappear ever come out and say, oh, I was wrong about that. But I have heard them come up with a new story. Maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe you haven't. But I think that is a very real life relevant example of goalpost moving that you may be familiar with. And that, that goalpost moving within discussion is something that is becoming more and more prevalent as people, uh, as the gap between our ideologies gets wider, uh, this, this seems to just be commonplace. So that's one way in which we are, are lacking intellectual honesty. Another thing that, um, that is happening is we're, we're seeing one perspective. Um, so I want to kind of run through a personal experience again here. I had sat with a, uh, a person who was uh, highly academically regarded and was working with the UN on human rights. And um, she was working uh, from a perspective that all human beings are born equally. And now this is a, this is a sensitive topic, right? It's uh, all human beings um, are not born equally. That is, that is a reality. Each of us, when we are born, are born into different places in society, different places in the world, and with different skill sets and talents that are inherent within our genetic makeup. Um, and then on top of that genetic makeup, the environment in which we are born into also shapes and shifts who we are, what we become. And the reality is that there are two inputs that create a fully formed functioning human. There is biology and there is environment, nature versus nurture, right? But there is no nature versus nurture debate. Nature versus nurture is a, a complete fallacy of logic. Um, it is impossible for anything to exist. So nature is, is, is biology. It is, it is the, the, the being that we are, the physical thing and nurture is the environment in which we are born into. So uh, nurture would include the air that we breathe. Nurture would include the nourishment that we receive, the water that we drink, as well as the like love and attention of the things around us. But you cannot possibly exist without biology and you cannot possibly exist without environment. So, so there is no possibility for a nature versus nurture debate. There is only a, these two things interacting. And, and that's a very important thing. And every one of us has likely heard the nature versus nurture thing. And uh, that has been grilled into us. And we have like taken positions on that, uh, or it's possible we've taken positions on that. But the reality is we've taken positions on a, on a, we've taken a position that cannot possibly exist. So if you are arguing that nature is, is uh, the, the thing that shapes someone, or if you are arguing that nurturing is the thing that shapes someone, you're wrong. Both things shape people. This became important because um, if you start to say that all humans are born exactly identically, uh, you, you are starting your foundation of, of saving humans, of protecting human rights from a, from a place of um, dishonesty, from a place of non-reality, from, from a logical fallacy, uh, from an idea that cannot exist. And if you're starting at a place that cannot exist, the likelihood uh, that you get to a place that can exist is pretty small.
So um, what this really boiled down to is uh, this person had taken a, uh, had been taught a perspective that males and females are, are exactly identical. And that because we put males in blue clothes and females in pink clothes, uh, they, they end up different. And uh, biologically, it's just wrong. Um, we can observe actionable differences in um, species that are not human, that have, that have no uh, human nurturing capacity. And in every species that uh, has a sexual reproductive capacity, there are variances in um, male and female actions and humans are included in that. Now there's a spectrum that each of us exists upon, uh, how, may, how masculine or how feminine we may be. And for some of us, we may shift more towards the feminine side. And for some of us, we may shift more towards the masculine side. Um, but to pretend that there is no species difference between males and females uh, is completely wrong. And so I asked her how you know, she'd come to that conclusion. And her response was she had never been exposed to any biology. A person with a PhD um, working with the UN on human rights who has, who has consciously chosen to ignore 50% of the equation in understanding the solutions she is uh, so desperately working to create. Now that is a huge glaring hole in intellectual honesty. Right? You, you, cannot, you cannot possibly ignore 50% of an equation and, and come up with, with the right outcome. And as a, as, a, as a more simple, you know, I, I get that there's some charged energy around that subject. Um, if and I could explain all of this, but it, it just, it, it's too much. Um, the, the, the reality is it, there is variance that is genetically in our male female makeup that comes from the preciousness of the female sex cell and the inherent non-preciousness of the male sex cell. Um, a female human will have somewhere between 300 and 400 viable sex cells in her life. A male human will have billions of male sex cells available at any time. And the fact that we have that offers competing uh, reproductive strategies and those competing reproductive strategies uh, are, are evolutionarily built into the beings that we are and that have evolved over billions of years. So this should be inherent um, in, the, in the dialogue, but in case it's not, um, I just wanna very clearly articulate that because there is variance between males and females, it does not mean that a male is better than a female or a female is better than a male. It just means that we have differences um, and that these genetic differences have been bred into us through the genetic encoding of ev the evolution of our species into the to the beings we are today through the course of our ancestral history actions and decision-making. Um, and the reality is that every one that is born it has variance between everyone else that is born. We all have our own genetic gifts, genetic challenges. We all have our own 
opportunities that we're born into, opportunities that we're not born into, the place and time and families that we're born into will all impact our lives and they will mean that we end up not being equal beings. But the fact that we are not equal does not mean that we are not treated equal. We are not all the same thing, but we all are all should be treated as if we are equals. Right? We do not need to be the exact same to be treated equally. That also doesn't mean that our end outcomes should be equal, right? Like there is going to be a variance in the way that lives play out. And each of us will have our lives play out in different ways based upon the choices we make. And as an example of that, right? Um, I, I spoke with a few people about uh, my desire to make this podcast and every single one of them said, don't do it. Right? So it's a, it's a choice I made to make this podcast. Like there are controversial, quote unquote, controversial topics in here. I don't find these topics remarkably controversial. Um, I find the misinformation around them as clouding the reality. So what I am working on here is unpacking a lot of things that uh, people are generally fairly scared to speak on or about because I think they are vitally important. And if we are scared to talk about the things that are vitally important, the opportunity for uh, progression is, is pretty minimalized and small. So again, there, while there are differences in gender genetics, it does not make one gender better or worse than another. It just means there are differences. So I just wanna be very clear about that. If you're really interested um, in deepening your understanding of evolutionary biology, I would start by reading uh, Robert Wright's The Moral Animal, Why We Are the Way We Are. But, um, that's a pretty decent look at um, the physiology and functionality of the human brain and male and female species differences and, and why they exist um, and why they are written into our evolutionary history. Uh, you, there are absolutely errors and omissions in Robert Wright's book. And um, finding an error or omission in a book does not make the rest of the book invalid. So this is another thing that's kind of been going on a lot, right? Is um, there's this new idea that if the media tells us something that isn't true one day, uh, that everything the media says therefore has to be fake or false. And that's just simply not true, right? If I came to you tomorrow, if I came to you today and I said, hey, listener, um, I just want you to know I've, I've solved something, I've figured something out, two plus two equals five. And you look at me and you're confused and you say, why? And I say, well, two plus two, it's five. Okay. I just want you to know that. Just write that down. You know that forever. Now it's all good. And then I come to you the next day and I say, hey, three plus 27 equals 30. Well, the fact that I had told you the day before that two plus two equals five does not make my, my next day statement of 27 plus three equaling 30 false. It means that I was wrong or lying or providing misinformation the day before. But being wrong, lying, or providing misinformation in one circumstance does not make all future instances in which I speak wrong. 
it should make you more aware of what I say. If I say something that is factually inaccurate, you should, you should heighten your scrutiny around the things I say. What you should not do is immediately assume that everything I say is incorrect, false, or dishonest, because that's, not, that's just inherently not true. And, it, and saying that, uh, it lacks intellectual honesty, but also lacks just intellectual observation, right? It's just making a judgment about all future outcomes based on, a, based on something that happened is uh, de deductive and, and wrong. Um, so I, I, I think uh, to kind of to circle back on um, why this concept of, of intellectual honesty is really important. I wanna, I wanna put one more example out there. Let's say you and I are sitting face to face and in between us is a playing card and on, the, on your side of the playing card, is a, it's, it's solid red. And on my side of the playing card, it's solid green. And someone comes into the room and they ask us, you know, um, listener, what, what, are, uh, what are you looking at? And you say, well, I'm looking at a solid red card or I'm looking at a red card, or I'm looking at a card that's, that's red. And then that, that same person asked me, you know, what are, what are you looking at? And I say, I'm, I'm looking at a green card. I'm looking at a card that's green. And then you and I now have completely different opinions of uh, the same object that sits in front of us. And we have different opinions because we have a completely different perspective of that card. And from your perspective, uh, what you see is a red card. And from what, my perspective, what I see is a green card. Now, the lack of intellectual honesty would be if you got to see my side too, like, right? If it flipped really quick or someone who was holding the card just kind of tilted it for one second, you got a little flash of green. And you didn't change your perspective at all. You just said it's a red card. Right, that you have new information now. Or what if you got to see 10% of my card or you got to see 1% of my side of the card or I got to see 1% of your, your, your side of the card? Um, wouldn't I have to change my opinion? And if you, if you aren't able to change your opinion, um, then you're lacking intellectual honesty. Uh, this also flips us right into the concept of shared reality, right? Because uh, shared reality is a really important concept in that we all do have our own individual perspectives of every single thing that happens. And there's this new idea that has been pushed uh, in communities that I'm very close to that um, everyone has their truth and that we need to respect people's truths. And I've been fighting about, against this idea um, for a very long time because I view it as one of the most problematic concepts that exists in society. And um, here's the reason, right? So um, if, we, if you and I sit down in a room and, and you have a red card facing you and I have the other side of that same card, which is green facing me, and an independent observer comes in and they can see both sides, and then another independent observer comes in and they can't see anything. They just, they're just blocked off from the room. And, and I start saying, you know, uh, it's a green card. Well, then this independent observer who can't see anything starts saying, yep, it's a green card because I spoke first, right? I, I was the first one to say something. And then when you say, no, it's a red card, the independent observer who I can't see a single thing 
says, no, no, no. It's, it's obviously a green card. Like Patrick is telling the truth. He sees a green card. He's telling you it's a green card. You're wrong. But you know you're looking at a red card. So now we, we are at odds, right? Now there's another person in the room who has the perspective of both sides. And they say, hey, you know what, Patrick, listener, it is both a red and green card. I, I hate to tell you, but you only had a 50% view of this card or a little bit less than 50%, right? Because there's also the sides of the card. But this independent observer has a, has a perspective of a shared reality, has, the, has more of a scope, has the, uh, this, this independent observer, right, which cannot exist within our world other than the entity itself, right? So if, the, if there was no actual independent observer, if the only, indiv uh, the only other thing in the room was the card, the only thing that would know the truth about what we were looking at is the card itself. Because the card itself is both a red and green card. Now, I understand that there, there is a physics lesson that could be offered here and that the card is neither red or green. It is a reflection of light and it is actually neither red or green because it is not that red and green are the, car, are the colors that the card is not absorbing and that is why we are seeing them. I understand that that is the concept that we could go to. We're not going there. What we are talking about is a is um, the shared way in which we interact with the world. So um, getting into a, a physics argument is is not beneficial here. It is is not what we're going for. What we are looking for is an understanding of the of the universe which with we interact with, not the universe that is underlying that is hidden that is interacting with us. So, um, and this is this, but why this is because why we aren't worried about the physics here is because this is a social experiment, right? This is a this is a social problem, and this is a human social experiment or experience. So, if if the card itself is the only thing that knows what the truth is, then the person who gets the closest to the card, right? So, if you and I are are looking at opposite sides of the card but I get a 1% view of your side of the card somehow, some way. I expand my perspective 1%. Well, then I know an awful lot more about that card than you do. Just 1% more offers me an entirely new perspective that there may be more than just green on this card. There may, like I saw a sliver of red and therefore I can no longer intellectually honestly make the statement that I am looking at a green card. I can I could make a statement that that could be wrong that, says, that is wrong that says I'm looking at a mostly green card because the card itself knows that it is not mostly green it is neither mostly green nor no, mostly red because there is a small fraction of card that is something else it is less than 50% red it is less than 50% green and it is an entity without outside of my individual perspective and outside of your individual perspective. And um, if we reward people who say the card is green or say the card is red, and we reward them for speaking their truth, for holding their truth, we are rewarding people for being wrong about the, about the card. We are rewarding people for having the wrong idea of the shared reality of the card, of the space of information that is between each of us. And if instead we shifted our reward, if instead of saying, you know, 
you get your own individual truth. We said, oh, you should expand your perspective so that you can see the 1% of the other side as well. We end up in a place where, we're, where we understand each other significantly more. And it only took 1%, right? If I could see that there was, if I could see 1% of your red and you could see 1% of my green, you and I would understand each other much better than if we only had that red, that red line, green line that we couldn't look beyond. So we, we culturally have started to reward people. We have started to grant people this right to make up their own reality and hold that as the most valuable thing. And that is wrong and that is detrimental. And, and that, is, that is rapidly expanding the divide between us in a way that at some point will no longer be repairable. So the reason I'm here, um, right, in my own hubris is I want to see what I can do to shrink that gap, to start to build communication over the divide, and to pull people back closer to this shared reality that exists independently of our own individual perspectives, our own individual truths, are not held accountable by what, by what exists, by what is. And, and so this all goes back to this concept of why I may have a little bit of uh, granted clarity, right? It is that the, my perspective, while it is mine, and it, I, I only have the perspective of me, it is not clouded by the ideas that can cloud other people's perspectives. So I can go into a concept and I can quickly absorb that information. And if that information is new and valid, um, I will readily adapt it. So th this has happened in my life, you know, eight years ago, and, and it sounds so silly now because you can look like in every grocery store, every magazine, every, every shopping aisle, there is a keto thing. But when I started talking about keto eight, nine years ago, and I started telling people, you know, you can eat fat and you will lose more weight than you can possibly imagine. People thought I was a lunatic. And, um, I un like, I understand why people thought I was a lunatic because we had all been told this story that fat was the thing that made people fat. And then I come with this, this new concept, right? I, I really took in the early teachings of a guy named Dave Asprey, who most people don't know his name, but he's the guy who uh, popularized Bulletproof Coffee. He's really the guy that brought the concept of uh, a healthy fat, a reality of healthy fat to America for the first time in a, in a popularized way. Um, and I, I took kind of his guidance and, and ran with that down uh, an intellectual exploration that led me to the concept that, yeah, keto is a fantastic way to recomp recreate a human body to, to lose weight, to use uh, energy pathways that um, most of us are no longer using that are built evolutionary into our biology and that can have really significant benefits for you. And it's hard because eight years ago when I said these things to people, they thought I was crazy. And now it's like this, the most common thing, like everybody has tried a keto diet. Now keto diets are very hard. They're, they require immaculate discipline and there's, there's not the leeway that you might have in a normal, in a normal diet. And that's why when testing, when testing keto on uh, larger populations, it was never as, as successful as I wanted it. Because uh, what I learned over the course of many different body composition challenges that we did in Vitality is everything that we did always worked. 
but the things that people were most uh, interested in is how they could cheat, right? What is the way to get around the system? What is the way that I can create body composition change without actually doing the work? Um, and that's not everybody, right? But that's, that was the most common thing. It's like, oh, can I bend the rule this way? It's like, well, you could do whatever you want most of the time. But with keto, you can't really bend the rules. The rules are, you know, you get too much carbohydrate in your body, you, you create too much glucose, your body shifts away from ketones and starts using glucose, and then you're in a completely different energetic system. Um, so what I found over the course of many different body composition challenges is creating a plan of mindfulness and the widest variance of flexibility within your eating actually create the biggest change. The, the best body composition program that I ever did uh, results wise was 30 days of meditation along with eating essentially real food. And the changes were uh, dramatic. Every single program we did, there was always a significant um, body composition change in the participants, but that one was the best. And it didn't involve, there was zero. And I do mean zero. There was zero ask for physical exercise. And, and there was zero ask for uh, essentially, I mean, there was no ask for calorie restriction. None of, none of the programs ever did had calorie restriction. Um, but they were, they, they were all very different and they all had amazing results, but flexibility was very key. But my, my point is, and, and the way I was able to do these different things, right? I could have stuck with the first one, right? First one, um, you know, we did a slow carb plan and slow carb was a thing that uh, Tim Ferriss kind of created. And, you know, I had my own variants to slow carb, but we, we kind of used that, that programming method and slow carb created, created body change. And it, it had cheat days and, and people kind of really enjoyed that. But the longer term reality was that the cheat days became the thing that people mostly fell into after the 30 days. And um, that just wasn't a sustainable long-term plan, but it worked for the 30 days, right? I could have kept going back to that program, but then I realized, okay, that's like, here's a thing that worked, but what could we do to shift? So then we kind of went more to a, then we went to a ketogenic plan. Um, and ketogenic plan worked and it was great. And it created significant body change, um, and, and really rapid body change. But again, you know, when you get three weeks in to, to ketosis and the food starts to get boring, people get bored with that. And then they start to cheat. And that last week, right. The last week for most people, it was a net, it was a net failure. So people were only able to go about 21 days, right? And then, and then net failure kind of happened. And that wasn't for everybody, but it definitely was for a lot of people. Um, and they took in that information. Again, it worked. And I, I took in the information of the two previous programs. And it was like, well, shoot, man. Like, I don't want people to drop out after 21 days. And I don't want people to only be able to do this for 30 days. I want to create plans where people can do this forever. I want to create a mindful pattern of consumption, that allows you to be a better human and to uh, adapt and adjust your body in the way that you want it to. And, and so what does that have to do with intellectual honesty? Well, what I'm saying is I can, I take in new information very quickly and I can adjust my thinking to, to adapt to new information. I don't have to say, oh, this slower carb method program worked. So I'm just going to hammer that forever. 
Like if I can make something better, I will, I will shift my opinion based upon facts and information that come in. And shifting opinion based on facts and information is uh, the thing that's getting away from us right now. I wanna, I wanna roll right into uh, kind of a primary topic here, which is masks and vaccinations. And um, I wanna roll back to the start of the pandemic in March of 2020. Or yeah, the, the start of the announced pandemic, right? I, I told you, I told you where, where the pandemic started, but uh, the, the, the March kind of shut down, right? When, when our world really changed in a way that we in our lifetime hadn't experienced before. So one of the, one of the things that uh, I was really proud of at the start of the pandemic is that I would go out into public and I wouldn't wear a mask and I would smile at people and I would try to bring a smile to all of these essential workers that were quite literally keeping our, our lives functioning. You know, and there were a lot of jokes about what was and what wasn't essential um, at that time. And yeah, they're funny, whatever. But the reality is if, if the people at the grocery store if the employees at the grocery store decided they weren't going to come in, we lost our society. If the, if the employees at the gas station decided they weren't going to come in, we've lost society. Like we were that close, right? If you imagine that there are no, there are no employees who are willing to go to a grocery store. There are no employees that were willing to go to the, to the delivery trucks. What's going to happen? You know, I don't think I don't think we really fully appreciated how close we were and how valuable those people were. Um, and I think, in a way, I was able to see the, the value of those employees. One, because I felt really connected to them before the pandemic, and two, because I had this four-month head start on thinking about these things. So I would try to go places. I'd try to go shopping, and I would, while everyone else was covered up in a mask. I would try to bring like brightness and happiness and positivity because there were a lot of people that were interacting with other humans in a very scared and terrified way at that point, right? And I saw the fear in people and I saw how the mask, I, I saw how I felt the mask was being used, right? So um, it's very easy. And it's very easy because a lot of people wear a mask uh, in a in a false reality that it offers protection for them. Now, it may offer a very minimal, very, very minimal amount of protection for you from airborne illness. But the reality of the mask is it was providing protection from the expelled air uh, of us individual beings. It was, it was reducing the distance that our breath would travel into the society with which we were interacting. Um, but I didn't see it like that at the beginning. I saw uh, this opportunity to not wear a mask as a positive that, that I could bring kind of positivity to people. As the pandemic continued on, um, it became more and more apparent to me that my decision to not wear a mask was not providing positivity to anyone anymore. It was providing significantly more fear and it was providing significantly more negative and anxious feelings of the people around me. And at that point, I changed the way I interacted and started wearing a mask. Um, 
And it, so, so uh, as, as if you are an anti-mask person, let me, let me just share this with you, right? Like, yes, that's easy to see that some people are wearing masks because they are scared of catching a virus. And there is not a lot of logic in wearing a mask in an attempt to prevent a virus from getting in your body, right? The, the size of the virus is infinitely smaller than the protection that the mask offers. And now I see, right, if you're looking to create a, a story for yourself, the story that you are likely creating for yourself is, okay, Patrick, so if the mask isn't protecting a virus from getting into me, if the virus can get through the mask, then why would I need to wear one? Again, that is a goalpost moving. Okay, so there's a there are there I there's there is some grace here because if you remember initially the CDC recommended not for for uh, citizens to not wear masks. Now, when they did this, they were they were speaking to us dishonestly. Okay, so they told. Uh, Americans not to wear masks because they were worried if they told us to wear masks, we would buy all of them. And then the essential workers, the workers at the hospital, the workers at the grocery store, the workers delivering all of the things we needed from Amazon wouldn't have the option to wear a mask, right? So initially we were lied to, we were given bad information to not wear masks and they told us it was because it wasn't effective. Okay, so if you are then on guard as to why uh, you you would then wear a mask, I, I can understand that logic, right? It's like, well, they told us not to. And they did a bad job. There are lots of things, right? You may or may not remember uh, in March, in the middle of March, when they said, hey, we're going to shut down. The Trump administration came out and said it's going to be a two week shutdown. That was obviously never going to be true. We weren't going to solve a global pandemic in two weeks, but that's what they told us, right? There, there, were, lots of, there were lots of pieces of information that were given to us that were dishonest, that were inaccurate, and that were done to manipulate the way the populace works. That's all true. But it doesn't make the fact that masks reduce the depth that the expelled air from our body can travel a false reality. It is 100% true that putting a mask, putting anything in front of your face will prevent the air from traveling a distance that it would have traveled without that block, without that barrier in front of you. So it is, it's just a reality that we, we have to live with. We sometimes are given bad information that doesn't make all information that we're given bad. So I understand what you're saying. You're saying if the virus can get in, then why can't the virus get out? Again, that is a goalpost moving. It is, is not about the virus not leaving our body. Every time, if you are infected with COVID and you exhale, there, there are scientific studies that show the virus leaves your body. Now, if your virus leaves your body and it travels in a six foot radius around you, then anyone in the six foot radius has that opportunity to be infected. If you're wearing a mask and that dampens the, the depth with which your breath is expelled to a foot, then you've reduced that, that capacity to infect others six times. And that's why masks are important. Masks are not important because they protect you. They don't. Masks are not important because they don't let the virus leave your body. They do. 
They just reduce the amount of spread. And that is important. So there's not a lot of logic in that. But there's also a huge subgroup of people who wear masks uh, for the other reason, which is so that they, they are not spreading their breath into the public in a way that is advantageous for the people around them. And not wearing a mask uh, is just telling, it is sending a message, whether you are attempting to send that message or not, the message you are sending is that you don't care about the people around you. Now, uh, I've had it brought up that, you know, people want to not wear masks so that they can show other people that it's okay to not wear masks. That's not the message you're sending. That might be the message you think you're sending, but the message you're actually sending is that you don't care about the people around you. And um, the, that, that, is a, that is a reality of the situation. That is the message that the other people are receiving. So whatever message you're attempting to send, if you're not attempting to send the message that you don't care about the people around you, it's the message that's being received. And that, that's an important part here, right? So I, I recognized from my interactions with other humans that the, the message I was attempting to, to send was not being received. And therefore I had to change my actions so that it more, more accurately reflected the message that I wanted to send, which is that I, I appreciate you for being here. Uh, I appreciate you for being the human that you are. And I will do what, uh, what makes you feel comfortable. And I will, I will make this little tiny sacrifice of um, putting a piece of cotton on my face so that you can feel better. And I view that small sacrifice as uh, very worth it to make the people around me feel better about their lives. Now there's this other um, concept about, uh, you know, I've had somebody, I've had somebody attempt to say that, that masks, the, the information they've seen is that masks are bad for you. Well, you know, it's a, it's a pretty silly statement um, to make for, for, for a few reasons. You know, um, if you are walking into a room full of poisonous gas, well, wearing a gas mask is going to be uh, very advantageous for you. Now, if you're walking across the Mojave Desert and you don't have any, anything to drink, uh, wearing a mask over your head you know, a gas mask over your head that increases the heat on your brain is probably not gonna be a very good thing for you. So wearing a mask being bad for you uh, or, or good for you is pretty dependent upon the situation that you're in. Now, if we're looking at like K95 masks um, and, and we're like observing the potential dangers within them, the one thing we do know is there have been jobs over the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years where people go every day and they have to wear a mask because of the environment that they work in. And what we haven't seen is a big rash of uh, mask deaths, right? There's not been um, a lot of autopsies that have come back and been like, oh, this person took a job where they wore a mask all day. Now, in your home in an everyday environment and in normal living experience, is, is your biology better designed to operate without a mask? Yeah, for sure. We didn't evolve to wear masks. But there are situations that may arise. There are situations we may choose to put ourselves in 
There are situations that we may not choose to put ourselves in where wearing a mask may be advantageous for our health. And the disadvantageous situations uh, of wearing a very thin mask that doesn't really prevent uh, inhale or exhale respiration, respiration, but does dampen the depth at which we can send our breath, uh, the, the detrimental health effects of wearing a mask like that are pretty insignificant, if any. Um, again, there, if any is probably wrong, right? I'm telling you that if you are at home, sitting on your couch, your body is better equipped to breathe without a mask on. But if you are in a place, or, or if you are in a place where a mask is valuable, a mask is the thing you want. What I am saying is there may be a infinitely small sacrifice to make to wear a mask over your mouth that dampens the distance at which your breath can travel when you are in a public space. Now you may choose to not be willing to make that infinitely small uh, sacrifice. And that is a definitely a choice you can make, right? Like that, that is an opportunity that you have. Just remember the message that you are sending to the people around you. And again, if that's a choice you want to make, you know, there, there, as we stand right now, there's, there's not much that can be done. Uh, if, if that's the message you want to send other people, that's the message they'll receive. I would ask if you really think it's worth it. You know, a lot of, a lot of this uh, uh, comes down to this concept of uh, freedom. And uh, this, this importance of freedom and how making this small sacrifice is like this step into this uh, repressive society where we are subjected to these ruling figures. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of reason to be on guard about that. I do always wonder where all of this outrage was uh, after 9-11 when, when TSA became a part of our lives, right? There is, there is no documentation that TSA has made any of our lives safer. It's a billions and billions of dollar expenditure a year. Uh, it makes traveling significantly worse. And when it was put in place, nobody fought against it. Um, and to this day, we have the ability to stop TSA. You know, you know, one of the things that I do when I go to the airport is I don't go through your little x-ray machine, right? Like it's wonderful that George Bush got his friend um, this no-bid contract to provide x-ray machines for the U.S. government. Um, but I don't go through them. And if every single one of us decided one day we weren't going to go through them, those things would be gone the next day. We could end TSA because we could disrupt travel by just saying, no, we're not doing this, right? Like you, you have no reason to scan my body. You want to run me through a little metal detector? You want, to, you want to set that metal detector so it goes off when the smallest piece of metal makes it through? Fine. But you have no reason to scan my body. And, uh, you know, that, that outrage wasn't there. And that is a freedom that doesn't offer us any benefits. And, um, it, you know, maybe it does make some people feel safer. Maybe the, like, illusion of... Uh, 
introspection or inspection makes people feel safer. But um, if you look at the amount of dangerous items that make it through when TSA runs its own self-tests, you will see very quickly, this is an ineffective program that has never once been effective and is not stopping or protecting, is not stopping anything and is not protecting us. So if you want to talk about, you know, I've been, I've been railing on that for whatever, 20 years now, but it's not changing. And me not taking my shoes off every time I go through TSA um, isn't going to make a difference, but I'm going to keep doing it because I, I want to do the things that I think are valuable. And if you want to join me, you can not take your shoes off when you go to the TSA. You know, they can ask you to, and you can say, no, I, I have a, I, I am medically deciding not to take my shoes off. And then they'll ask you why. And you just, I don't, I don't talk about, I don't talk about my own medical history with people that aren't my doctor. And I think you can make that argument, right? Like the, if you want to talk about places where, um, fungus bacteria are transferred. Think about the places where thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of feet that have been sweating in shoes get pulled off and slopped down onto the floor, right? Like that is not, that is not a great place for human health. And um, I think you can, I think you can be really honest about the fact that you might not want to be in that place. And I'm not, I'm not a person who's a germaphobe but I am telling you that that is a place that is not, that is not clean, right? Like there, you, have you ever been in one of those places and seen them cleaning the floor? No, I'm sure they clean the floor at some point, but have you ever seen it? And how many people have you seen take off their sweaty shoes and plop their sweaty feet right down on the floor? Right. A, a, a athlete's foot is a thing because sweaty feet, are perfect breeding grounds for bacteria, for fungus. And that fungal expression will happen in those places. Again, this is just, um, this is just a small example of, of something that I view as a significantly bigger sacrifice than strapping a little piece of cotton to my mouth when I'm around people. And so I just, I want to continue this, really the same story in two COVID vaccines, right? The most controversial topic that exists. Ah, so I started out um, not interested in getting vaccinated. Let's say that. I wasn't necessarily uh, not interested because I'm anti-vaccination. Uh, was vaccinated as a child. I just, I live very rurally. I, I don't interact with a lot of people. I didn't have a fear of COVID. There just wasn't a real good reason for me to be uh, vaccinated in my mind, right? Uh, my perspective just didn't, didn't give me a lot of uh, incentive. So how did I shift? Why did I shift? It's very similar to the, max, to the mask idea. Um, and it came about a little bit different. You know, it took a little bit more internalization to shift me. 
And really, it came from reading anti-vax uh, social media posts. Why? Why would that? Why would reading anti-vax social media posts? See, see, Patrick, you are influenced uh, by peer pressure. You you just wanted to be rebellious, and that's that's. I mean, I do like to be a rebel, but that that is not the case here. Um, this actually this actually came from a very uh, logical introspection. So um, I read a post from um, someone very important to me saying that they were worried about the vaccine because it didn't have FDA approval. And, um, you know, that like, that's a super easy thing to put in your head. Now, I, I understand uh, the vac uh, Pfizer vaccination has um, FDA approval at this point, but we're, we're talking about a retrospective few month ago history. So just, just let that, let that concept slide. There was a point when the, when none of the vaccines um, had FDA approval and this was at that point. And I kind of, I, I kind of, you know, being uh, not interested in getting vaccination, that was an easy thing for me to think about as a, a perfect excuse, right? It's like, if this thing isn't tested, we don't know the long-term implications of uh, COVID vaccination, which is true. Uh, we don't know the long-term implications of MDA and MDRNA uh, vaccinations in general. And uh, that is also true. We also don't know the long-term uh, implications of getting COVID, which is also true. But, you know, the FDA approval thing, it hasn't been tested. That's, that's a pretty good one. Um, so, so I started to think about that, you know, like how, how does that actually fit into, into me, into my ideology? Why am I not getting this? Is it because it's not tested? Is it because it's not proven? Is it because it's dangerous? And um, that had me, that had me think about, you know, what, what are the other things? What are the other things I've taken a risk on? Now, some of you know, I got, I got super sick as like a 24 year old and uh, doctors couldn't help me, medical science couldn't help me. So I have taken a lot of very experimental things. And from that point, I have been pretty freed to experiment with my body. In my fridge right now, um, I have a research peptide that um, has been shown in non-human trials to lengthen telomeres, to increase telomere length. And increase in telomere length increases the theoretically increases the lifespan of, of a being of a human. And I will inject that into myself. And that has never been tested on a human. Ever. And of one experimentation, right? I've talked about that before. I've talked about that with some of the doctors that have been on the podcast. And of one experimentation is something that I am willing to do. So I was willing to inject something into my body that has uh, no human experimentation. Um, but I wasn't willing to get this um, vaccination. And I had to really think about that. Why, why would that be? And the, and the reality is because um, research peptides, you know, the peptides are essentially just the specific uh, chain of amino acids that change the way that, that your genes express themselves. Uh, research peptides are, um, they provide a direct benefit for me. 
an easy benefit that I can, I can see. And maybe they do, right? But maybe they don't. We also don't know what they actually do. But I'm willing to take the risk that um, utilizing a research peptide could have positive implications for me personally. And once I realize that, right, once I realize I'm willing to take a risk, if I can see a direct benefit for me, then it became a very easy thing to um, take a risk, quote unquote, of getting vaccinated because it offers a, a, a benefit for people who may be less fortunate than me, right? Like COVID is uh, taking a, a significantly higher toll on um, those with less financial resources and those with more aid, less time. So, you know, that, that became super easy to get, get vaccinated because uh, I, I'm already willing to do these things. And then you start looking into vaccinations more. Um, five billion, over five billion people, about five and a quarter billion people have received a, a vaccination. And, um, you know, we're just, oh, uh, I said that correctly, over five billion people on the planet have received a vaccination. And are there, um, again, yeah, are there potential long-term implications? Yeah, I mean, there's potential long-term implications for everything, you know, uh, but the side effects, the demonstrable side effects are so minimal. Uh, have there been people who have become ill because of the vaccination? Five billion people have taken the vaccination and yes, there have been. But like, if the vaccine for COVID somehow turned out to be milk, 38% of, um, of the American population would have a negative reaction to milk. 38% of the American population is lactose intolerant. There, there have been essentially infantilely small uh, serious implications with 5 billion people receiving a vaccination. So the like, has this been tested theory? We're not talking about an N of one. We're talking about an N of 5.25 billion. 5.25 billion. N of 5.25 billion. There are no studies with N of 5.25 billion. Like N of 5.25 billion is as certain as we will ever get with any study ever. And that has already happened and we already have that data. <clears throat> and there just aren't, um, there just aren't verifiable real problems that, that are happening with this, with this real-time study that is happening on the human population. And yes, I do understand that there is a sacrifice that you, you may be taking a, a, an infantilely small risk in getting vaccinated. That's true. There's no argument about that. There, we do not know the long-term implications. And again, we also do not know the long-term implications of getting COVID. Um, but we do know that there's a real, there's a real risk and the, and the risk is um, expanding you know, as, as the virus mutates in new ways, it's, it is becoming more powerful. And the thing I said from the beginning, which is if we, do, if we dodge this one, there'll be another one, is coming more and more true. Now, I think that, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to move the goalposts on, on the vaccination conversation. It's hard to look at yourself and be like, you know, 
is this minor is this minor inconvenience is this minor risk is is this minor invasion uh, taking a shot in the arm uh, worth it for me even though i don't i don't have a fear of covid right i i i don't i don't feel worried about about this virus and i i don't feel that there's a reason <clears throat> for me to do this well, again there may not like you may be able to handle covid you you may be a super healthy uh, amazing being and, and genetically you may you may be able to deal with whatever virus comes your way but there are people that that aren't so lucky to be you and if we get the vaccination done uh, we eradicate the virus in, in the same way that you know we can look down at our arm and we don't see a smallpox scar anymore now there's a scar that happened when you got a smallpox vaccination that that was there and we don't have that because we eradicated smallpox because we don't have to get the smallpox vaccination anymore because we got rid of it. And all we have to do is look down in our arm and see, oh, I don't have a smallpox scar. So yes, there is a, um, there is a sacrifice, but I, I don't think, two things, you know, uh, if you're willing to make a sacrifice because you view it as a benefit for you, but you're not willing to make a sacrifice because it is a benefit for society, you know, that, uh, that may be who you are. And I, I don't really think there's anything that anyone can do to make you not be that person, but you could not be that person. Like you could be a better person. Uh, that's, that's just kind of reality. And, and when we start, you know, you can make up, you can, you can move the thing, right? You can say, oh, now there's ivermectin, right? We could, we could use a different drug to treat COVID. Sure. I mean, we don't really know the long-term implications of using a horse de dewormer on our body either though. So it's not like we're, we're no longer, it's not FDA approved. We're no longer, we're, we're, we've kind of moved the post to now there's a different thing. I mean, maybe there is a different thing. Maybe you could treat, maybe you could treat COVID with a different thing. Um, but also we could get vaccinated and just eradicate the thing. And then we don't have to wear masks anymore. Um, we could, we could refigure out society in a way that isn't as uh, disease kind of culturing. Um, and if you want to say, you know, there's, there's still people that talk about COVID being a hoax and I, you know, it's not, um, I think it's, it's really like, just a quick, a quick Google search of um, proponents of anti-vaccination who have paid the ultimate price of dying by COVID brings up a pretty good list, right? Like Mark Brenner, who was a conservative right-wing talk show host in Florida, called himself Mr. Anti-vax. Well, he just died. You know, he he was non-vaccinated. He just died of COVID. Phil Valentine. Um, a conservative talk show host died on August 21st of COVID, uh, was not vaccinated, spent a lot of time expressing his skepticism of the vaccination. Dick Farrell, a conservative talk show host from Florida, was a Trump supporter who changed his mind about the vaccine after he got sick, after it was too late. And he died on August 4th after a two-week battle with COVID. Todd Tucker, conservative talk show host from Oklahoma City, died on August 11th, had viral pneumonia, 
pneumonia, pneumonia uh, that came about from a COVID-19 experience. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung Sr., um, a radio host and Bible prophecy teacher. He died on August 15th. And he had spoken about how the vaccine was all about government control. Another public defender, uh, anti-vaccination anti who died of, of COVID. Caleb Wallace, the founder of the San Anglo Freedom Defenders, an anti-mask group who organized anti-mask rallies. He died August 28th and had been unconscious and on a ventilator for weeks before he died. Herman Cain, right? Republican politician, part of the Tea Party, an active Trump supporter who didn't really even live long enough to get the opportunity to become an anti-vaxxer because he died in July of 2020 of COVID-19. And this list will go on and on and on. Right, and, and, and there is no reason for any of us to believe that all of these people who spend all of their energy talking about how dangerous the vaccine is, who then die of the disease that the vaccine would have protected them from, have any reason to be dishonest about their vaccination status. Now, Donald Trump got the vaccine in January at the White House. I, I, it's, it's hard for me to understand how you couldn't see um, that there, there may be a benefit for you individually. But even if you don't see that, that there, there are definitely people dying of COVID who wouldn't be dying of COVID if we had all been vaccinated. If we had, if we had taken the steps to eradicate this virus while we have the opportunity. And yeah, are, are, there, are there worries about an authoritarian government? Yeah, for sure. But this is a disease, right? This is an illness, a virus. This isn't the red party versus the blue party. This is a viral entity against the human biology. And if you've made this a political thing, if you've determined which side of your vaccination status you're on based upon what economic policies you believe in, does that make any sense? Does it make any sense to be so concerned about your individual freedoms that you show up as the a-hole in the community? And keep in mind, I started this by saying, I'm not concerned about what the community thinks of me. And that's still true. This isn't, oh, I'm going to do this because the community thinks I should. This is, I think I should do this because it offers a benefit to the community with which I exist upon. And I don't exist if our community doesn't exist, right? If the, if the workers at the grocery store, if the workers in the shipping departments, if these people decide they're not interested, I don't exist. And you don't exist either. Because if society breaks down, 
Or if we get so sick as a society that we can't function op optimally, none of us, and that includes those of you who might have basements full of canned goods are gonna survive this thing. And it's not gonna be a lot of fun. You're gonna have all the freedom you've ever want if government breaks down, if there is, if there is no more society. But you're gonna wish you had one because society is the thing that keeps us safe. Society is the thing that keeps us together. And society is the thing that keeps us alive. And if you've lost the value of your social experience to your individual freedoms, I think your priorities have, have misaligned. And again, I understand the individual freedoms, right? I'm telling you, I protest TSA every time I fly. I have spent an hour in front of police officers. I have been pulled into back rooms. I have, I have missed flights. So I understand personal freedom. I understand standing up for it. But if you pick the personal freedom that doesn't really ring true intellectually to who you are, are you willing to experiment with other things in your life because they provide direct benefit for you? Are you willing to take an experimental supplement that helps you lose weight? Are you willing to take an experimental supplement that helps you put on muscle or makes your brain work better? but you're not willing to take a, a vaccine that 5.25 billion people have received without issue because you're worried about what it might do to you or because you don't see the direct benefit for you. So what I'm trying to tell you is no matter what side you're on here, there is a direct benefit for you to get vaccinated. The direct benefit is that you protect the community around you, that you make people around you feel better, that you make the people around you safer. When the people around you feel better, feel safer and are safer, they're nicer, they're kinder. When people are nicer and kinder, your life is immeasurably improved. And it's like, you know, I get in these one-on-one -on -one podcasts and it, it feels very preachy and it's, it's not what I'm doing. What I'm, what I'm offering here is a, is a document of um, someone who was both anti-mask and anti-vax and who took a conscious path of self-observation about what the reality of the situation was. And who had to shift my perspective, right? It wasn't, I, I, I wanted to shift my perspective. I had to shift my perspective because the facts of the situation forced me, if I wanted to be intellectually honest with myself, the facts of the situation forced me to change my perspective. So as you, as you sit and you think about you know, what, what choices you've made, 
and how those choices impact your community, your world. Can you allow yourself the opportunity to expand your perspective 1%? If you see a, a red card in front of you, can you start to see the edge of the card? Can you start to see the 1% of the other side? If you see a green card in front of you, can you allow yourself to see that 1% of the other side? And by seeing that 1% of the other perspective, right? The reason I'm sharing these things is I, I had both sides. I saw the red and the green side of both of these two issues. And I changed not because of the pressure of society, not because I was scared of anything, but because it was the right, honest thing to do. So can you take, and if you're, if again, right, if you are on a, if you were on a, I was the first one to be vaccinated person and, you know, I, I took this risk and, I, you know, it's wonderful. But it, you need to see the other 1% of the side too, right? You, you need to understand that there are people who aren't viewing, they are, that are viewing the mask thing, not as a, they're viewing wearing a mask as a selfish thing. Because some people do wear masks because they're scared. And that like selfish thing of being scared, it doesn't have a logical conclusion because masks aren't protecting you, they're protecting others. But if you're on the side of, you know, we don't wear masks, you have to realize that some people are wearing masks, not because they're scared, but because they are aware and, and wanting to protect their community. Or maybe it's not even protect, maybe it's just comfort. You know, offering comfort to your neighbors, offering comfort to your community is a pretty rad thing to do. So for both, both, of, these, both of these perspectives that are, are constantly pulling each other apart, no matter which side you fall on, what would happen to your view if you expanded 1%? Right? If, if you think the vaccination is the most important thing, can you expand your perspective to see that some people are worried about long-term implications? That's fine. Right? I mean, the reality is, if you've been vaccinated, we don't know the long-term implications. The reality is, if you haven't been vaccinated and you get COVID or you've had COVID, you don't know the long-term implications. We're in a new space. Uh, but to pretend that either side uh, is equally right also also isn't fair. There is a reality that 5.2 billion, 5.2 billion people have received the vaccination and that there just haven't been issues. Could there someday be issues? But there could be issues with anything. We could we could find out we, we, I talked about COVID earlier, right? We could find out in, in 30 years that, or sorry, excuse me. I talked about keto earlier. I did talk about COVID too. I talked about keto earlier. We could find out in 30 years that if you ever went on a keto diet, you like took off 30 years of your life. Now, biologically, historically, evolution, humans have experienced um, ketosis forever. So uh, the likelihood of that happening is infinitely small. 
like, sure, anything could happen. And, the, and, and there have never been long-term implications from any, any vaccine. And sure, there, there could, there have never been, uh, after I think 30 days, there have never been new complications that have emerged in a, in a significant way from any vaccine after someone's been vaccinated for 30 days. So, um, but could there be? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's an infinitely small risk that anything could happen. Again, if, if, the, if the cure for COVID was in almonds, if, if people who, who are deathly allergic to nuts, the, the COVID vaccination was made from almonds, it would kill all of those people, right? So there, there, are, there are infinitely small risks in everything. And using infinitely small risks or shifting the goalpost as, as your ideas get pushed away just isn't an intellectually honest way of um, reviewing, reviewing the current situation we're in. So if you have a desire to end the pandemic, if you have a desire to go back to a quote unquote normal way of living where we don't have to have a mask in the car at all times, there's, there's some really easy things we can do. And we might have to do them for another 12 months, right? But it's better than 72 months. It's better than 96 months, or it's better than 100. Like, let's make a small sacrifice now so we stop having to make sacrifices in the future. Take a look at your life. See if you've given yourself the opportunity to ingest things or inject things. I'm sure there are fewer injections than ingestions things that might be a little bit experimental, but you took them, you were willing to take that risk because it directly benefited you. And see if you can apply that same thing, whether it be wearing a mask or getting a vaccination to the protection or the benefit of the community. So this podcast is the opening of a dialogue. And I am more than happy to hear from you about your questions, about your comments, about your thoughts on these topics. The only thing that I'll ever ask is that you come with the same open ear that I'll give you and an intellectually honest perspective that isn't willing to move the goalposts and is rooted in the middle ground and the middle space that is the independent reality that exists beyond our own perspective. I'll talk to you guys soon.